0: We're going to take some time to just kind of work through this uh, devotion. And as I mentioned earlier, I think it's somewhat unusual. Um, Friedrich Fotenauer was the president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod for, I think, over 30 years. And what was rather interesting is that um, politics actually uh, entered the Missouri Synod really at this time, really for the first time. Uh, it would be about, uh, about 10 years later that there would be something called the Statement of the 44. It took place in 1945. And the, the Statement of the 44, um, interestingly enough, one of the signatures, one of the people that were a part of this group of 44 was a guy by the name of Oswald Hoffman. Remember him, the Lutheran hour speaker? He, probably, he was always regarded as a very, I mean, he was an f- incredible, incredible preacher and speaker. But, um, but um, what was happening is that the America was becoming more and more, I guess you might say, um, it was one step removed from the immigrants. This was now the next generation. And that next generation was becoming Americanized. And in the American religious experience, doctrine was always secondary to experience or life. Now, we put those two things together, right? Um, you start off and um, let's just take, say, take, take for instance, let's take marriage. Now, you have to listen to me, Jamie. Um, it used to be, I guess you might say, that marriage was something where you probably maybe even had your marriage arranged, which will be the case for you, Jamie. Um, <laughs> where, where uh, in a sense, you were, this was going to be your spouse. You probably didn't even know him all that well, but then you actually, it, because it was a marriage, you actually committed yourself in love so that your experience... Your feelings came second now if you notice how the culture is today it's feelings first commitment second but when feelings come first oftentimes now in the next this, this generation that we're facing now you almost don't ever even have commitment people are actually living later and later are getting married later and later in life and living together has become the norm right well you would say when did this thing start in our culture where emotions and feelings became first and doctrine or teachings or commitments became second well they were already beginning to see what was happening in the missouri synod back in the 1930s now the american culture was beginning to seep in and now it was far more important to be, uh, if you use the word of the 44, to be loving. And if you just loved people, then your doctrine and your teachings would be something you deal with secondary. So now, if you come to a church, you just say, well, the people there are really loving and then what they do is they then bring you into the church and then they say, well, now this is what it is that we believe. and You've already bought into the church. Uh, my experience uh, with the Mormons is that the Mormons were masters of this. When we got, first got out to Utah, oh, they came, my Mormon neighbors came over and they brought all kinds of food and gifts. They even would have a, there would always be a kind of a do-good project where one of the Mormons in the neighborhood would be chosen to do a good thing for you. And we needed a swamp cooler in our house over there. And Ed, from across the street, came over and he installed the entire swamp cooler for us. That was just an incredible gift. But it was tied to what? What? Well, yeah, I know you Midwesterners. You you would die if you put a swamp cooler in here. Just all it does is, is it... It uh, basically runs air through water filters. And if you're in a really dry climate, it both cools the air and also humidifies it. And so it's a real cheap form of air conditioning in a warm climate. So anyway, so we, we, we put in a swamp cooler. And they did this loving thing and all these loving acts. And they would have just loved it if we had come and said, well, hey, we, Mormons are great people. We, it's it's wonderful. Well, they would do this with all kinds of people. You first get loved into the church, and then, after you're well into it, what do you mean that God was once a man? What do you mean that it's now possible for us to become gods and goddesses with our own universes? What do you mean when you say that we are actually had we were spirit babies that existed before the creation of the world? You go, whoa! These doctrines are really weird. By that time, you're already loved into the church. So Friedrich von Futner was seeing that. Let's uh, start with with a prayer. Lord God Heavenly Father your church is in need of the strength and the ability to be able to confess you and your word before the world. It seems as though the way that the church grows is by us, by the church showing all kinds of good works and good deeds to the world in which we live so that the world will like us and care for us and maybe even care for you. But we pray that it would always be your word that would draw men to us, draw men to the church, draw men to the waters of baptism. We ask, O Lord, that as we study this word, this devotion today, that you would also keep it upon our hearts and upon our minds that we may ourselves see which direction and how we should go as a church. That we may properly bring souls to the salvation that you have bought for them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, um, let's just do a little talking about what is happening in, um, in our culture today. And maybe just kind of take it a step at a time. And... Um, Say, all right, well, it's just happening. He says, Dear brothers in the Lord, uh, in the circles of our synod, there is the complaint that spiritual life among us is in regression. Do you see spiritual life in regression today? What are your thoughts? Yes, they're all up in the choir loft. We think uh, 700 people are up in the choir loft. <laughs> um, but you know, it's it's a, you know you say, well, it's summer, right? And he's going to talk a little bit to that too. But can you measure? I mean, is it? Can you measure it? Is it is it receding? Is it going backwards? Is our spiritual life different today than it was 30, 40 years ago? What do you think? There's an anger out there. There's a lot of talk about that. Yeah. My my son Hans actually wrote an article in the Federalist which is this online uh, magazine blog thing and where he talked about the fact that um, anger today is actually uh, becoming a, a, a form of um, what do you call this endomorphins that you get this release you know that give you a what is it it's like almost like a drug isn't it endomorphins so in other words if you're extremely happy or sometimes if you're extremely angry that if you like to get angry, if anger is something that kind of gives you a cause or a purpose or whatever it might be, that this is the, the new thing now is to immediately, the, the media gets, gets people immediately mad and they get and this anger has become, but actually a, pro, a problem in Hans's article, he was also a confession, he said that was also kind of all part of part of us. You know, we're mad at our society too. You know, and that's kind of how Trump wrote into his election, didn't he? He was also appealing to people who are angry with the way in which you know, the LGBT stuff was going on and so on and so forth. You know, anger about unemployment. But, that's also the world, isn't it? What about the church? What was the church like when you were growing up? Spiritual life? What's that? Very strict. Very strict. It was a, a very different kind of, I mean, much more in, into our life. Yeah. Well, Kathy Midah, you come from. Ca- ca- very interesting twist of you know uh, how people are raising their children has really had a big impact on the spiritual life of the church right
1: yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, and that's uh, church church activities. Uh, you know where where in our priority list is is that, and and how? I Miss mean, you. You guys are the converted. I mean, we're not exactly saying that uh, here now. Let's straighten you out. But there are a lot of people that are not here, and our concern is for them too, right? And a lot of pressures. Uh, we I was talking with um, one of our elders, your husband and father, about kids and sports and athletics, right? And when those athletics come into competition with the church, what do the kids think when the athletics come before church? When that supersedes, when they're going to be punished if they don't participate with the team on Sunday morning, and you are a cruel and mean parent if you were to say, no, no, we're going to suffer. You're not going to play if if this is the case. You're going to go to church instead, and that becomes a. We had. Um, I would say you know I'm I'm really young, uh, so um, I can't remember back as many years as some of you, but uh, when I was growing up, uh, there was no such thing as sports on Sunday morning, or even Sunday afternoon, as far as, far as I was concerned. You know we we had maybe summertime activities, and you could go outside and play all day, but never were sports ever put into competition. In fact, we even had, we had release time instruction. I mean, how many of you ever remember release time instruction? Am I the only one here? Yeah, there we go. I got somebody here. He's, we're, we're, he's, he's a lot older than I am. Um <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why you didn't respond. You didn't want to raise your hand. We had that in Minnesota, where we literally left school so that we could go to our church and have a religious education. Literally, the schools let us out for that. So that's why everybody built the the uh, the churches right next to the schools because you had release time instruction. Well, that you, that today would never happen, right? And uh, and yet. Uh, if it's a Tuesday night and it's a ball game, the kids maybe think that maybe their ball game is number one. Well, let's read on. In his time, he saw two. too. He said, the complaint is justified. Church history teaches that the generations that have inherited the benefits from previous generations don't treasure them as highly as their fathers who fought and worked for them. True today, the generation that um, fought in World War II came home, had lots of kids, was grateful, happy to be able to have freedom, happy to be able to have what God had given to them. They were living in that little old house that had two bedrooms in it and they had four kids. And they were grateful, they were alive. Next generation, my generation, flowers in their hair. Oh yeah, and uh, then the next generation, and what what do we have coming up? Mike Ham, I was talking to him yesterday, and Mike said uh, he lives in terror of what's going to happen in ten years in his business, because nobody wants to become a plumber. So. Um, I guess we all better learn how to be able to plumb our houses because the day is coming. Where, who's going to do it? The generation that wants to work. Where are they going to come from? Mexico. That's the people that actually are coming in and are grateful. They're the ones who are tearing the roofs off of your houses. They're the ones who are going to work for the minimum wage. They're the ones who are working at McDonald's, right? Ever been into McDonald's? It's like a trip to Mexico. Mexico. How about our kids? How many kids in Zionsville do you see from the high school? Dane, how, maybe you can tell, tell me. When you go to, into the businesses of Zionsville, do you ever see any kids from the high school that are working in those businesses? Very seldom. Yeah. They're all, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Zoe sees a lot of her kids from, from Lebanon that are working in Zionsville businesses. Um, but uh, if you go into Derrick Dairy Queen down here, it's a very privileged uh, area, and we don't have kids who are working grunt jobs. But I say that for r- a couple of reasons. One is that I want to regress just a little bit. Um, have, you, have you ever heard of these things called TED Talks? TED Talks... Um, I, I don't, was it, did Ted Turner start those? I don't know. But they're, they're called TED Talks, and they are people who are extremely articulate and very well-versed in their field who get up and make presentations, and they're attended by large numbers of people. They have, they have, they're very, very well done. Well, this one lady was saying that she had done research on what, went, what made for success in life, and... They looked at you know, grades, they looked at natural intelligence, they looked at uh, everything in every different kind of vocation and profession that uh, they looked at. There, she said there was only one thing that was common to the issue of success. It wasn't money, it wasn't wealth, it wasn't culture, it wasn't education, it was one thing. It was called grit. The ability to be able to gut it out the ability to be able to undertake a task and not quit the ability to follow your convictions all the way through trial and tribulation grit and what I think we're seeing is that we're doing our children a huge injustice by not taking our values and gritting our values out so, in other, but, but he's going to go on and say something more. In other words, this isn't just a matter of we're all a bunch of you know, tough Lutherans who are coming to church every single Sunday. There's something that is in church that is in our daily life that he thinks is important. Well, let's read on. That spiritual life among us has declined as evident from many and various observations. The main Sunday divine service is carried out in an a shoddy fashion, and as a consequence, the Christian training of the church in the family is neglected. Once-flourishing parish schools are shrinking, in many cases without due cause. Many are satisfied with Sunday school and inadequate confirmation instruction instead of making every possible effort to have Christian schools. Attendance at the divine service is of secondary importance for many, particularly in the summer months when the automobile allows the whole family to go places other than church. The ways of the world are ever more prevalent among us. The difference between the way we live and that of the children of this world is ever decreasing and that's why I think um, that's why I think it's very. It's very important that when, you, when church becomes entertainment, when there's really no difference between a concert and what's happening in church on Sunday morning, you go, well, if I, if I was going to a secular concert and it looks exactly like what I'm doing in my church with just a few different spiritual words, um, how, how do I know the difference? What is what, 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 is, what belongs properly to uh, what is sacred? And that's, if you go into the Old Testament, that was one of the things about their worship. They guarded and protected their worship so that it was always sacred and different from the world. Even to the point where if there was incense that was used in the temple they would never allow that incense to be used by anybody else. So that when you walked in, you smelled that smell and it told you that that was what you used in the worship of God. It was sacred. So these things are happening already back in the 1930s. Can you believe it? Okay. What can we do in order to elevate the spiritual life of our synod? First, we must guard against trying to elevate this spiritual life with means that cannot accomplish what we seek. An attempt has been made to elevate spiritual life in the home congregation by rousing the church to missions and directing her sight to the misery of the churchless, especially the poor non-Christians. You say, whoa. Now, we're not going to talk about missions well, you say, well, what is, what is he trying to get at? As the church was becoming doctrinally more and more indifferent to Lutheran doctrine in a distinctive way, rather than address the issue or try to be able to solve this issue on the basis of the Word of God, they sought to find a common denominator That everybody could agree on as a way of unifying the synod. So, you don't believe that it's all that important that, say, for instance, that we stand firm on the real presence, and you do, instead of debating that subject, let's talk about sending people out to India because there are people who are dying without Jesus. And you go, yeah, and you go, yeah, let's work together for that purpose. And it sounds really good because you're doing something that the church is supposed to do. Now, they were just at this time, they literally, and India was one example, there was um, a missionary that had gone out to India. And, you know, here he is. He's a Lutheran out in the frontier of India. And there are these Presbyterians and Baptists and so on and so forth. They're all doing missions out there. And you get there and you just kind of feel like you're just all by yourself. And so you get together with these people and maybe you have a worship service with them. And then the word comes back from the mission field to the United States and says, hey, they're, they're having services, they're having what we call unionistic services out there in India. And people are going, oh, come on, they're out in India. They're just doing mission work. Don't, it's not a big deal. Well, that became a big controversy in the synod because some said that's unloving. Other people said that stands against us doctrinally. Now, today in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, we you know we love to have our conventions, right? Well, where we stand up and talk about all the mission congregations that we started and all all the mission pastors that we sent out into the world. So everybody says we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Question is, have we? ever solved what are the doctrinal differences in our church have we addressed them can we address them and we know we know you guys know you've gone out to congregations elsewhere that um, our Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is increasingly being drawn into the evangelical culture of America and the evangelical culture is more about feelings and more about experience and less about doctrine and teaching and beliefs. And as we are finding ourselves drawn that direction, it's hard for us to be able to sit down and say, let us go back to the Word of God. It's interesting. The, um, remember last week I told you about this visitor that we had here at church, this uh, guy from out in Nebraska? And he came and he was... Um, He was talking about how it is that he was was so grateful, so grateful that he had come to understand what Lutheran doctrine and teaching was and how faithful it was to the scriptures. He started off, he was a police officer here and he wrote wrote a nice long email. I'd love to read it to you all but it's probably being recorded. Um, But he started off and he was a He was a police officer down here in Indianapolis. He would always choose the most difficult part of uh, section to be stationed. And then he ended up uh, being on this special intervention team, whatever it might be. So he was kind of like the, um, what do you call that uh, squad that goes in when there are terrorists? What? Yeah, I mean, uh, yes, like that. But what happened was, uh, when this Westboro Baptist Church was coming, remember how they came and they were going to, I guess they were going to disrupt something or they were going to make a protest here? Remember that? those Westboro Baptist Church people who are real fanatics? Yeah, they, they were going to come here to, to Indianapolis, and that was a, that was a few years back. And I think, with you know, they, a bunch of guys got on motorcycles. They're freedom riders, you know, and they were going to go out there and you know, kind of circle them or something. Anyway, he was started to investigate the, this Westboro Baptist Church online. He was trying to understand more about them because they were anticipating, you know, riots or whatever it might be. And lo and behold, he comes across my son Hans's Lutheran satire, because he did this satire. We did these chipmunks. Who are making fun of the Westboro Baptist Church? It's, it's a long story, but it's satire. And he started, he said that was co- his computer, remembered that he saw it. He said he showed it to all his friends and all these people that were in the police force and all that kind of stuff. Well, then later on, he he was beginning this, this journey, right? And eventually he starts watching Hans's. Lutheran satire, and he was actually attending, at that time he was attending part-time a seminary, a Baptist seminary, and he said, I knew that something was wrong, where he said nothing against Lutheran satire, but I was getting more theology out of Lutheran satire than I was out of all the textbooks that I was reading from this seminary. So he eventually found his way to issues, etc. And now they've been he, uh, his wife was a physician's assistant and the only job they could find was in valentine nebraska anybody know where valentine is boy are you guys limited valentine nebraska is in the sandhills of nebraska way up in the northwest corner right down below um the black hills and they he said uh, uh, He said that they're they're the most welcoming loving people he's ever seen in his life but he's out there and now he is going to a lutheran church missouri Synod congregation in valentine and when he was here he talked about how he could not wait to baptize his children and he could not wait to receive the lord's supper it was the most meaningful thing his entire life it was it was, so, it was so just so touching, and I mean, it just makes you cry. Do we know what our treasure is? Do we know the gift that has been given to us in the Word of God, and how our doctrines and our teachings are things that correspond to God's Word? Let's see what He says. Let's read on. Another confusion was that of the pietists. In order to elevate spiritual life, they taught that spirit and life flowed out of our personal life of sanctification. The more holy a person, the more spirit. But we can't produce spiritual life. We live from that which God gives. When spirit and life are made dependent upon our work from this false doctrine, all of God's word and action are devoured and nullified. It is a wretched experience that the pietistic compulsion to works into a method of sanctification devalued God's word. Method. What church took its name from the word method? <laughs> Is that hard? <laughs> Methodist. The idea being, uh, being that here are the ten rules for how to live a sanctified life. Ten rules. I mean, you just go to the Christian bookstore and it's nothing there but a series of books on how to. And, of course, the story and the message that you oftentimes hear of in the big box churches are what? It's always, here is the subject of dating and now we're going to preach five sermons on dating. Dating so that if you can just get your dating straight you know your life would be a holy life and then God's gonna bless you well how in the heck here we are Lutherans we know full well that Martin Luther stood there and made a great confession of his faith and said we are not saved by our works we're saved by God's grace right and then along come the Protestants and say here are the works that you need to do in order to get God's grace wow that's really that's really good stuff uh, he was saying these Pietists did this. Now these Pietists, Pietism. Um, you don't. Today we don't use that phrase very much, but it was very, very big in this, among the Scandinavians, especially, somewhat among among certain Germans, but especially among the Scandinavians. And the Scandinavians, if you've ever seen any of these movies about these, they they like they like to to feel. I guess you might say um, it was almost as though if they if they felt their sin or they felt their 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 agony over not being holy enough, that they would then find themselves in a better state or condition for the Holy Spirit to work. Um, yeah, the, 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 the it's hard. How, how would you describe? Well, how do you describe Pietism? Yeah, they, um, um, uh, the, the, the I, the, the self, that, that religion has its object in you. Uh, Marquardt, Professor Marquardt once said, the definition of mysticism is that it begins in the mist, it centers in the I, and it always ends in schism. When it's all about me, My holiness is better than yours. My holiness is better than yours. Yours is better than hers. He's much better than all of us put together. And we have what? All of a sudden, different opinions about my experience and your experience. And the church ends up fragmenting. Why do you suppose that you get all these denominations among these frontier churches? The churches of Church of Christ, the Baptist churches, the fundamentalist churches, Every church is different. In fact, their doctrine is basically you, can't, you cannot be united in doctrine, and that's one of the things that unites them. That they actually are a body made up of people who are all having their own independent set of beliefs. Now, you center it in the self, and always what you end up with is you walk away from the Word of God is the word of god objective are the sacraments objective are they are these things that are greater than we are are we secondary to them or is it about my feelings when i go up and take the sacrament Yeah, and and, uh, 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 this tour that we took of Germany, one of the things that came up as we were talking about Muhlenberg was that he came along at a time in which there was a lot of sterility to the experience of the church. You know, now it wasn't even, it's almost as though the church just kind of was there as an institution to baptize you, to supposedly confirm you, and to bury you. But in between, in terms of what it is that happened in your heart and in your life, you know, and so they were they accused him of being uni- of being pietists. But when you got to this guy by the name of Zinzendorf, who was the, eventually the founder of the Moravians, or he, Moravians in the United States, um, is, they basically were saying, you know, your your experience is more important than anything else. And what you believe doctrinally doesn't matter that much. And so he tried to unify all the Germans together to make one great big melting pot of all the Germans who had different sets of belief because we all just love Jesus and that's all that's important, right? Well, that, that what happened then was pietism basically downplayed the importance of doctrine, like, like the cowboy who just falls on the other side of the horse. Uh, if you go on one side... It's all about, you know, doctrine as though it's math. And the other side is that it's all about feelings and you don't really have any content. But When you ride the horse, it's got to be that you put God's word out in front of you and that there is genuine and true repentance and faith in what that word says. And when that happens, the experience follows. It does, but it's a different kind of experience. You know what? We see that in the Apostle Paul. Um, let's uh, let's just look here. let uh, try to get us down into his substance. When it comes to the elevation of spiritual life in our midst, there let us therefore, dear brothers, completely forsake the above mentioned means and steadfastly maintain that the Word of God alone can elevate spiritual life. This is taught with absolute clarity by the Word of God. Our Savior says. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. St. Peter wrote, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation. Indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. I have a brand new grandson and he has been craving pure spiritual milk um, from his mother, or this pure milk. St. James admonishes, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. From these passages, it is clear that it is the word of God through which the Holy Spirit produces spiritual life in the dead hearts of men and then maintains and increases the spiritual life. The Word of God has this wonderful power because God, in and through this very Word, works according to His powerful strength in the overwhelming greatness of His power. So in other words, and and this this has always been, this is why Luther in his catechism always starts off by saying, as the head of the household should teach his family. That is to say, that probably more power, spiritual power, exists in a family where the Word of God is read, where the Word of God is discussed, where the Word of God is applied to the lives of children in the family. And when you could sit down at at a supper table and open up the Scriptures and read from the Scriptures, and then you say to your kids, what does that mean? What's that about? How does that apply to our life? When you take the Word of God, it actually embeds itself into their hearts and it becomes something that, the implanted Word, it grows later on. How many of you would say that you were doggone lucky to get all the way through college and still have a spiritual life? (laughs) Oh, I'm the only one. Okay, uh, that's right. Um, No, I mean... I, you know, you you here you go all the way through college and you just uh, oh, you know missing church and missing church and missing church and then you go to church and all of a sudden that liturgy grabs you and just drags it out of your heart because every single time that you were there in church and you weren't paying attention you were holding the hymnal and singing those hymns and all that kind of stuff and all that stuff just gets planted inside there and then you hope and you pray or excuse me your parents hope and pray that you. Will that, that word will spring to life later on? And it does. The Bible says that God's word doesn't return void, but it accomplishes the purposes wherein to it was being sent. And for us too. What about the day the hour when you and I are going to die? What's it gonna be like? Are we going to, on that hour, be going, Oh, I wonder what's going to happen to me after I die. I'm going to meet God. Or are we all of a sudden going to discover that that word comes to life and speaks peace to our hearts? Sometimes, you know, when you've you've had a near-death experience, that speaks to you. And it's something that never can quite be taken away from you. Maybe there are other times in your life where maybe it's been a trial or a tribulation that you've had to face. Somebody, maybe' somebody else who has died. Sove always tells the story that when her father died, it was like a crisis of faith, because for the first time in her life, she had to literally believe that there was such a thing as the resurrection. And when you're looking at a dead body, Is that word really true? Did Jesus really raise Lazarus? Is Jesus himself really raised from the dead? And that power to be able to believe that is in God's word. It is not in whether or not you've done good work projects and built uh, uh, handicap ramps for people in their houses. That's a nice thing to do. But it's not what it is that builds spiritual faith. And this is the great danger in a church because even though we have boards and functions and committees and all the things that we want to do here, the most powerful thing of all is sim- simply centered around the Word of God. What you do in your devotions, what you do in your families, what you do, we do here, as even in Sunday school, but maybe even someday a parochial school where we could teach the Word of God every single day to kids. That's going to be something that's going to be a great and powerful thing. Um, Should we read real fast? On your marks, he said, With the word of God, there is quite a different proficiency than with human knowledge. A man can accrue human wisdom through his own contemplation, investigation, observation. Thus, through his own ability, a wise and diligent doctor can find the means through which he can strengthen and maintain the physical lives of those entrusted to his care. It is quite something else with spiritual life. How it comes about and is increased is complete mystery a complete mystery to human reason. If reason wants a say in such matters, it can only babble foolishness. All instruction is solely to be found in the Word of God. Spiritual life comes about and will be maintained through faith in Jesus Christ, through confidence in the declaration of justification, which God has created through the redemptive work of Christ and proclaimed in the gospel. And this spiritual life is realized immediately through holiness and piety and through living in the commandments of God. As St. Paul writes, "It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives me, lives in me, and the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me." Notice how it is that he does tie life and piety to our doctrine. But we've got to believe these words if we're ever going to be pious people. Through faith, a Christian is bedecked with the Holy Spirit, with the forgiveness of sins and all the deeds and piety of his Savior. He needs no other adornment in order to appear worthily in the presence of God and the holy angels. He rejoices in this and is willing and ready in such blessed adornment to serve both God and neighbor. So, any thoughts or comments, dear and beloved people? The Word of God. Well, um, I pray that we grow in that Word in the coming months and that we never, ever have that Word taken from us. Never. Let's close with a prayer. O Lord and Savior by your grace and by your great mercy you have given to us a confidence that we can approach your throne and that we need not be afraid of your judgment or your condemnation even though we have sinned and continue to sin our entire life we know that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin and that we can, therefore, enter into your presence with thanksgiving, both now and also upon that day that you call us to be with you. We pray that as your church we would remain ever vigilant, studying your word, always being certain that what your word says to us is true, that your love for us has now become manifest in that crucified Christ, Therefore, as Israel lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so we pray that you would be lifted up in our midst today, that by faith in what you have done for us, we may overcome, not because of who we are or our own efforts or deeds, but because of your Holy Spirit that works through the word. By your word, work in us. By your word, work in our children. By your word, work in the world in which we live. And may we, by virtue of your grace and mercy, be the means and the instrument through which your word would come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.